This is it. The end of the world. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Area. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earth. The DC Universe will never be the same. Hello and welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents... Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is episode number four, and my name is Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey. <laughs> How's it going, Mike? It's going great, sir. It's uh, This is it. Uh, this is the end of the world. Uh, I, I guess the show ends at the end of this one. Yep, that's it. Last episode. There's, there's, <laughs> there's nothing else crisis to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not by a long shot. <laughs> But uh, wow, we've got. I uh, I wanted to to address this at the the very beginning of the episode. Now I know that you're kind of a broken record when it comes to oh, this is my favorite ep- issue of Crisis because uh, it seems like every time we record, it's like oh, this is. But I know that this one in particular <laughs> is uh, is one of your favorites. I love this ep- this issue, but uh, as we will uh, we will find out as we will discuss. I I have some issues with this one as well. Um, so yeah, this this one's going to be a very very interesting one to talk about. I think. Well, we're not going <laughs> to around at all. We're just going to get right <laughs> into it this time with the synopsis for issue four, and thus shall the world die, which I was totally convinced I was going to screw up. Uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> saying that, because it's kind of worded a little funny. This was released on April 4th, 1985, thanks, as always, to our good friend Mike Voyles at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. It has a July 19... <laughs> July. It has July. a July. <laughs> it has a July 1985 cover date. How y'all doing today? Uh, <laughs> Writer-editor on this bad boy was Marv Wolfman. Layouts were, were by George Perez. Finishes by Mike DiCarlo. Colorist was Tony Tallin. And the letterer was John Costanza. Right there, as we've said a couple different times now on the cover, in big, bold letters, this is it. The end of the world. There, <laughs> There is a handy arrow pointing to the death of the monitor. 
Look at him, he's dead! Right there, right there, right there! Uh, but we see Harbinger hovering over the corpse of the monitor, over... What would you call that thing that he's on? I was struggling with that in my notes. It's, uh... You know what it reminds me of is it reminds me of uh, the, the platform that Picard and Data stand on in stellar t- cartography in uh, Star Trek <laughs> Generations. That's... Yeah, it's it's like an observation platform, I guess. Okay. It's also very similar to uh, to how Cerebro looks in the X Men films too. It's also got a little bit of uh, the 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 Galactic Senate in uh, in, in the prequels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and and according to this co- this cover, Harbinger has a serious vote of no confidence uh, <laughs> for the Monitor here because he's got a smoking hole. Uh, where his chest used to be. While Pariah, what I love about Pariah is that he's looking on in horror, but he's also got that, you know, you ever, have you ever been at like a party and something really messed up happens in front of you? And you're like, somebody starts puking or something (laughs) and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) It's gorgeous. But to be fair, all of the covers have been gorgeous. So Mm -hmm. uh, the, the backgrounds in particular are really neat with all the monitors. No, not the not the guy that's dead, but the <laughs> the things you look at. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of funny because the main focus is the three figures, but Paris packs so much detail into the background that the image as a whole is just amazing. I wonder what this looks like in black and white. Ooh, yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen those. I have actually found a lot. <clears throat> pardon me, I've found a lot of art from. Uh, from Crisis Online, where people have scans of the original, uh, you know, penciled and inked artwork just in black and white. I don't know if I've ever seen this one, though. I'll have to see if I can find that. Alrighty, getting into the issue itself. July 1985. The red skies are hardly noticed now. Instead, attention is paid to the snows and winds, to the electrical mayhem occurring over every part of our fragile Earth. The stars, too, seem affected by whatever is out there. Constellations are no longer aligned as usual. Sunspot activity has increased a thousandfold. Weather has gone insane. Even those with powers and abilities, far beyond those of mortal men, find their every waking day filled with nightmares come true. Supergirl flies to Gotham City to meet with Batgirl. She thinks about how she hasn't heard from Barbara in months and how frightened her friend sounded. She also muses on how she can't blame Batgirl for being scared. After all, Supergirl lived through her planet crumbling around her and knows the terror one feels as their world dies. She finds Batgirl on top of a building. Barbara comments on how quiet the city is and how she thinks this is really the end. Supergirl says she knows the feeling, but isn't ready to give up so easily. Batgirl counters that Supergirl has superpowers and that she thinks that she, as Batgirl was never cut out to play hero. Supergirl points out that there are thousands of people out there with no special powers doing all they can. Her pep talk is interrupted when she spots a small plane in distress. Saying that this is a job for Supergirl, she takes off to save the pilot. Batgirl watches the save through her binoculars and wonders what she has become. The East Hampton estate of Steve Dayton, the world's fifth richest man, Steve is busy drinking himself into a stupor while his guest, John Constantine, tells him to snap out of it. Steve is sure the world is about to end, while John is certain that it won't. John can sense what is happening here and there, and knows what is happening to one and all. 
especially Swamp Thing. On Earth-6, Pariah watches as once again a world is about to die, and he can do nothing about it. This world is different from the others. There are no duplicates here, which is impossible, as all universes were formed at the same time. But there are heroes. Lord Volt, king of this world, confronts Pariah and demands to know why he is attacking them. Pariah introduces himself and informs Volt that he is not the one responsible for the destruction. Volt calls him a liar and uses his electrical powers against Pariah. These powers are thrown back at him, momentarily stunning Volt. His wife, Lady Quark, flies to defend her husband, but her nuclear powers prove just as ineffective as Volt's electrical abilities. Pariah insists he is not their enemy and will help if he can. Their daughter, Leanna, calls him a liar too and moves to attack Pariah, but she is killed by an antimatter wave. Moments later, Volt is taken as well. Pariah feels he is being drawn away and grabs Lady Quark. They disappear together, with Clark begging him to let her die with her family. Pariah tells her he is sorry, but if he can save but one life, then his eternal damnation will be eased that much more. On the Monitor satellite high above our world, the Monitor senses that his enemy draws closer, and that with the death of Earth-1, his enemy will become so powerful, none will be able to stop him. But there is one chance... He sends an ion-based energy ray across the turbulent cosmos. It hits an unstable star in the Vagan star system and erupts into another ray that streaks towards Earth. In Japan, a group of scientists study the antimatter and are generally freaked the freak out when their superior, Dr. Kimio Hashi, comes in and calls them all cowards and tells them to get back to work. She even dresses her father down before telling everyone to leave so she can study the phenomenon alone. Kimio peers through the telescope just in time to see the ray the Monitor created headed straight for her. There is a terrific explosion, and a scream, and then nothing. The scientists gather around, but find no trace of Kimio. On the Monitor satellite, the Monitor watches the scientists as Harbinger watches the Monitor as Alexander Luther watches Harbinger. Harbinger feels the others control over her growing while Alexander muses on the fact that by killing the Monitor, Harbinger will be serving his needs. Meanwhile, in the shadowy realm of the Other, Psycho Pirate and the enemy watch the Red Tornado moments before he is transported to them. The Pirate welcomes Red Tornado, who wants to know who they are, why he has brought them there, and are they responsible for the madness on Earth. More than just your Earth android, the enemy tells him before inviting him to witness the destruction of the universe. On Earth 2, during the time of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Firestorm and Killer Frost find the Monitor's machine. Killer Frost is still all about some Firestorm, which is still weirding Firestorm out. Vandal Savage watches them, but doesn't believe they are responsible for the Red Skies. Suddenly, Sir Justin, the Shining Knight, flies up on Winged Victory. Firestorm was told about Sir Justin by Firebrand, but Sir Justin had no way of knowing of who Firestorm and Killer Frost are. As shadow demons pour out of the Monitor's machine, Sir Justin declares that Firestorm is the wizard responsible for the creatures. Firestorm doesn't have time to argue the point as the battle begins. Killer Frost and Firestorm take down a handful of demons, as Sir Justin uses lightning and his sword to do the same. Their victory is short-lived as the demons swirl around and form one giant shadow demon. The same thing happens across Earth-1 and Earth-2, across the gulf of time and space, 
on Earth and Saturn and Mars, from the Vagan system to the lost world of Skataris, the ordinary people, the leaders, the followers, the workers and the teachers, all can only stare in shock and horror and fear. The world is indeed at its end. In New York City, the combined forces of the Outsiders and the Teen Titans, along with Superman, watch as one of the Monitor's towers shimmers into view. Starfire and Halo fly off to investigate, and are met by Kimio Hashi, who is ranting in Japanese, and that they don't realize what they are doing and need to get back. Starfire and Halo misinterpret this and attack the new Dr. Light, but she is able to defend herself just fine. The blast knocks the Outsider and Titan back. Superman streaks in and speaks to Dr. Light in her own language and gets some serious attitude as she explains that she is the only one that can help them. Superman asks what he can do to save the world, adding he would sacrifice his own life if need be. On Paradise Island, Wonder Woman watches helplessly as her mother and fellow Amazons offer prayer to the gods instead of helping her combat the problem. Back on the Monitor satellite, the Monitor talks to himself about the fact that everything is happening too fast. Sure, the warriors he sent through time and space are fighting valiantly, but all is not ready. Not yet. Despite this, he can't surrender. Suddenly, Pariah appears before him, and the Monitor greets the purple-haired man by name. After some confused back and forth, the Monitor reveals that the satellite was constructed just prior to the day Pariah was cursed. Pariah is surprised that the Monitor knows about that, and, but that surprise turns into anger as the Monitor reveals that he is responsible for Pariah's continued survival. As they watch the various heroes of Earth-1 and Earth-2 struggle against the Shadow Demons, the Monitor gives a brief history of Earth-1 and Earth-2. Pariah is still hung up on his own problems, and finally asks that if the Monitor can't change the future or the past, what has he done? The Monitor replies he is doing the best he can, and then asks a favor. Do not harm her until all is made clear. Before Pariah has a chance to find out what the heck the Monitor is talking about, Harbinger enters the room. She fights the possession the Unseen Enemy has over her, but ultimately that proves useless. The enemy commands her now, and his command is death. Harbinger fires a massive bolt of energy, which kills the Monitor and sends her falling to a lower level. Pariah tries to revive the Monitor, but he knows that he is dead. And Pariah does the one thing he can do. He cries. Slowly, Earth 1 and 2 succumb to the antimatter wave. The parallel universes die simultaneously, and in a sad and quiet manner. Earth 1 and Earth 2 are now gone. And to be continued, I guess. <laughs> Excellent job, sir. Excellent job. Thank you. You gave me goosebumps because I was following well, along dude, with you. <laughs> after last episode, I had to step up my game. Jeez. Oh, wow. So... <laughs> How do you talk about the end of the world? Yeah. <laughs> Next up, Scott and I are going to do our commentary of the day after. <laughs> we'll be back after these messages. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I do. I, I love the way this issue ends, though. Um, you know, you talk about your ultimate cliffhangers here. And, mm -hmm. uh, come on. It doesn't get bigger than this, does it? It really doesn't. No, not at all. 
It, it, it's kind of amazing, actually. Ah, <laughs> oh, good job on the synopsis, man. That was that was excellent. Excellent. Well, you excellent. know, from a thousand few a thousand floor view of of the of the whole thing, I was really surprised while I was typing up the synopsis how and i guess i've never really had this feeling before reading the story because i was just reading it as a story i was really surprised overall how wolfman was able to give that end of the world feeling throughout the entire issue yeah yeah uh, it, it's it's laid on in layers you know it, it kind of stacks upon itself but i think it, it it's it starts right from the opener uh, of the issue. I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and get right into this. Um, we'll, we'll start with the cover here. Um, I love the the cover copy uh, mm-hmm. on this issue. Um, you know, in the uh, Absolute Edition, of course, they have removed all cover copy and the, uh, the UPC box and all that, so you get a great shot of the art, which is beautiful. But this is one of the one times where I think the cover copy actually uh, enhances the cover. Maybe not so much the little arrow pointing to the monitor that <laughs> yeah. says Death of the Monitor, but across the top, above the logo <laughs> for Crisis, it does say, this is it, the end of the world. And it just it just gives weight to this cover. Uh, I really like this cover a lot. It's not one of my uh, favorites of the series, but you know that's not saying much. I mean, it, it's still a fantastic cover. Would still like to have a, a, a poster or T-shirt or calendar or something like that of this. It, it's still a great piece of art. I like how on all of these screens around the scene, it's all of Earth's being destroyed, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That is a, a theme throughout the entire issue with this. Yeah, it's like we talked about in early earlier episode. Man, DC's leaving leaving money on the table by not having print on demand posters of their covers because mm-hmm. it's Absolutely. just. Uh, I mean, people would snap that up in a heartbeat. <laughs> also, I think it has to be said. You know, you you've got this image of the the monitor. You know, clearly he's been blasted. He is laying there. He is dead. Giant arrow pointing right to him. Death of the monitor. And all I can say to this is. Spoiler! (laughs) You know, they used to do stuff like this in comics years ago. You know, one of the major beats of the story was actually spoiled right there on the cover for you. But but it doesn't really spoil it. It it gives a sense of foreboding because you know it's coming. And I I think that's really uh, masterfully done in this. But in a way, it also plays into the cliffhanger of issue three. Where uh, yeah, yeah. you had Harbinger sitting there, you know, now we we know in talking about it that she wasn't in the same room as him. Mm-hmm. And that that wasn't happening at that moment. But if you had read that and not realized that and then picked up this issue, you think you're watching the, you know, it's like that the, the, the five seconds later covers that are out there. Right. This is kind of like that. That's very true. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I, I still wonder to this day how clear that really is, that she's not in the same room with him. Because I don't feel like that comes across that well. Uh, I mean, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of criticisms of this series as a whole because I, I love it so much. But that's one I will give. I, I think that is kind of a, a poor transition. It is a little bit hard to figure out. Um, you know, just if you just read that issue standalone, I don't think it's really clear at the end of it that she's not right there with him, threatening him in person. That she's yeah. actually kind of ranting at the TV. You know what I mean? Because 
Because honestly, until you mentioned it last time, I had never realized that. <laughs> I always thought that it was just one of those cliffhanger things, and they just kind of forgot about it uh, in the next issue. Right. You just go with it, because that's sometimes how comics are. They have cliffhanger. It's like cliffhangers of like old serials, where you know the uh, at the end the the, the stagecoach falls off the cliff, and in the next chapter it's like, well, he got away, and this is how he did it. Right, so, yeah. Or, he he or, didn't get out of the cock duty car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or they come back and they change it so that it looks completely different from what you saw in the previous <laughs> chapter. Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm weird like that because, you know, in looking at, at all the comics I've looked at over the years of podcasting, I realized that I'm at war with my own reading self. Like, there's Critical Mike and there's Reading Mike. And right. Reading Mike is much more accepting of things than Critical Mike. So when both of them are pissed off about something, it makes it sound like I have, like, associative <laughs> identity disorder. But still, when both of those are pissed off about something, then I know it's a problem. When Reading Mike doesn't have a problem with it, but Critical Mike is pointing it out for the sake of the show, I know it's not a big deal. So, And I kind of feel like, because Crisis overall is so good... That that cliffhanger ending, I'm like, ah, screw it. We'll just, I'm just going to move on and, and get to Batgirl being completely out of character. <laughs> I love the opening splash here. Um, I mean, it's it's a gorgeous uh, piece of art for one thing. I, 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 I just really like the art in this. I like how mm-hmm. Supergirl looks as she's streaking in. Uh, the narration boxes are excellent. You know, this is how you kicked off your synopsis, and uh, and I just like this. It it totally sets the the tone and the mood, and right out of the gate, you're getting that sense of foreboding, and the dialogue in this scene just enhances that. That while Supergirl is still very upbeat and optimistic that everything's going to work out, at the same rate, she is acknowledging that things are bad. Because uh, she even mentions that uh, she's spoken to Superman and the Titans, that the, and that they think that the Flash has died, and you know that's enhanced by Batgirl's very pessimistic outlook. That she really thinks that hey, this is it, and uh, and I just like this. I, I think it really works well, and I love the little reminder here. I, I like when when writers are really thinking and really delving deep into what would this character be thinking about and, and what is this character's backstory and how does it relate to what they're experiencing right now? So Wolfman actually remembers, you know, Supergirl's origin kind of ties mm-hmm. into this whole thing with remembering that she actually experienced something very similar to this. Now, I think that this could be interpreted as she remembers Krypton dying, which isn't really true, but she lived on a remnant of Krypton for, for most of her young life. And eventually that remnant of Krypton ended up uh, basically crumbling away. And so that's what she's talking about. That's what she remembers. Now she says uh, world. So that kind of, or she says planet actually. So that kind of makes it sound like she's remembering Krypton, but that, that wouldn't really be accurate uh, so much as it was, um, what was the name of her? I want to say Candor, and Ar- that's not right. Argo City. Argo City, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. And I was like. why that. I was so pissed off with that Ben Affleck movie, because I thought, you know, are we, you know, we were going to get a movie. If, if you call a movie Argo, I think it's going to be about a, 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 a lost city of Krypton. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, Jack, Cur- Jack Kirby was even involved. So I'm like, you know, what the hell? 
you know, seriously. And <laughs> now he's Batman, so I'm really confused. <laughs> Sorry. No, I liked that too because she she points out that, and, and I don't think you know it could be read as her like like trying to one up her cousin because she's always been compared to her cousin. But she says not even my cousin Kal El can say that he was still an infant when he was rocketed from Krypton. Mm-hmm. And this is the 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 Silver and Bronze Age Superman who apparently, except for whatever Kryptonite has removed from his uh, memory you know remembers can remember what krypton was like right but until it was action 500 when he was in that that probing thing that he actually remembered the destruction but still that's a memory that's not that's the memory of a child right i mean she was like 13 14 15 years old when argo uh you know went tango uniform now, correct me if I'm wrong, she never actually lived on Krypton, though, right? She See, was born I'm in... not. I'm not sure of that, because, uh, you know, I haven't read a whole lot of her Silver Age stuff, and a lot of it now gets confused with what they did starting in 2004, right. when they brought the idea back, where, you know, Superman gets sent off, and Zor-El sends Kara off right. in her own ship. Right, right. So see, I was having the same problem as trying to trying to differentiate this Supergirl from that Supergirl because there there is that latter version where she's technically she's much older than Kal El because she was already a, I think a teen when mm-hmm. he was an infant, but then through the through the wonkiness of of time travel or not time travel but space travel and everything, she what was it? She didn't age or something. So by the time she made it to Earth, she was still a teenager, whereas he was a, a grown adult man or something like that. I don't think off the top of my head that that was the same story here. I'm pretty sure that she was a child of of post Krypton destruction. I think I don't. I think she was born in in Argo City when Argo City was you know free floating and all that. After I, I think I'd have to look that up to be positive. <laughs> well, those people had to pass the time somehow. I mean, well, yeah. You know what else are they going to do? <laughs> so Cables I'll, out. I'll, uh, I'll have to to reach out to Ange, uh, who runs a Supergirl blog and is a part of the Legion of Super Bloggers as well, because he's got a really good handle on pre-crisis Supergirl. So I'll uh, I'll try to remember to reach out through him through like Twitter mm-hmm. and and see uh, if he can um, give us a hand or maybe go over to his blog and and, and find an email address because I'm kind of curious about that now myself. Uh, you know, because I, again, Supergirl is a character I like, but she is kind of a blind spot when it comes to her stories and such, uh, from this era. So I'll flat out say it. I'm embarrassed that I can't remember because I have read a ton of Supergirl stories. Now she was never like the early Supergirl was never one of my favorites, usually only because it, it suffered from. How do I put this? Just girly stories. You know, they were kind of, it was like they were intentionally trying to write for the girl audience. And so they, they often were, they were just kind of flowery, you know, and, and never really my thing. But I always liked the character quite a bit. I just always wanted it to be closer to Superboy, you know, the way that that was always written and handled. But I've read a ton of them. I, I can't believe I can't remember that. But yeah, now I'm curious to uh, to find out what the story is. Because I, like I said, I want to say that she... Uh, she was actually born, you know, in Argo City post the destruction of Krypton. But oh, for the life of me, I just can't remember. 
Now, you mentioned that you really liked that Wolfman dug deep into Supergirl as a character in her in her thought balloons and such, uh, and that you like it when writers do that. In mm-hmm. the same scene, he commits a cardinal sin, I think, of some writers, that he completely recasts a character against what her type is just for the sake of the scene. You're talking about Batgirl. Yes, I'm talking about Batgirl, because I didn't think this too much at the time that I first read this issue, but in getting to know Barbara and knowing her history and listening to to Stella talk about her on Batgirl to Oracle over uh, at the Batman Universe uh, site, you know, this this really doesn't jibe with who Barbara is. I mean, yeah, there could be, like, feeling like you know, the, the end of the world is coming, so I'm a little depressed. But here, it's just like, you know, you know, I, I can't even be a hero. And, and, it, and it doesn't come from any organic place. It's just there to counter Supergirl's optimism about the whole thing. Right. And I think that that kind of hurts the scene a little bit. Because the artwork is great. I mean, the artwork is fantastic. Perez makes this costume work. Oh, like, yes. Even the headband just looks fantastic. Oh, she's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it really does work well. One so of... you have this, visually you have this stunning scene and you have all this great stuff with Supergirl, but it's it's not ruined by Batgirl, but it, it just, it makes me upset because it feels a little bit like character assassination. Well, I, it's weird because I, I, I can't defend it one way or the other. All I can say is my impressions of it both then and now is it never really stood out to me terribly much only because my experience with Batgirl was very limited at this time. She she didn't really have, you know, she was one of those on-again, off-again characters, you know, just kind of a supporting character, as I remember her. Um, never really had, like, her own book or her own strip or her own feature. She just was kind of here, there, and everywhere. And the stories that I can remember... Uh, you know, prior, you know, from this time going back are a lot of times her taking crap from Batman and Robin for playing hero in the first place. And they were always kind of, I don't want to say running her down, but not really taking her seriously. Like, oh, she's playing it hero, but one day she'll go off and get married and ha ha ha, that'll be the end of that kind of thing. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if that's where this is coming from. I mean, I'll agree with you that this... I don't want to say it seems out of character, but it, it seems she's just she's in a bad place. It, it's it's like this whole thing is well, it's kind of like how the dialogue is played here. That with the end of the world and her being essentially just a regular person that has you know her her acrobatic ability and the gadgets on her utility belt and all that, but essentially not being able to stand you know up against a cosmic threat. I you know. I like that there is a character in this that, you know, is is that street level character that questions their effectiveness in the face of this, because that's one of the things I don't feel like we got enough of with Batman, where Batman was part of the Justice League, but the Justice League often would go off and face these cosmic level threats and these cosmic adventures. And there's a lot of times when you're in these cosmic adventures and you've got Superman and, and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and they're all, you know, standing up to the threat. And then you've got Batman, who really doesn't have anything to do. I always felt like there should have been moments with Batman going, well, why am I even here? You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally ineffective against this threat. 
And I kind of like that that's the role that, that Batgirl is cast in in this. Now, whether that's counter to her character or not, I, I can't really say. I just kind of like that there is a character that, that has that moment of going, this is bigger than me, and it's scary. And that that's kind of how I always took it. But, you know, that, again, I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's just that's always kind of been my interpretation of the scene. Um, but I like that it leads with this, that, that this issue leads with this, because it does, right out of the gate, create a, a real sense of foreboding. I really like on uh, page two, panel one, where Batgirl is talking about how quiet everything is, that there's very few people out, you know, outside mm-hmm. and out and about in the city, and that, you know, she believes that they're just staying inside with their loved ones awaiting the end, and she says, I, I think it's really coming, and wow, you know, I mean, that really sets it up when you've got one of your heroes saying... I don't think we're going to make it out of this one. That's a great way to, to open the issue. And I always, I've always liked these two as friends. And I guess I always kind of took it for granted that they would be friends because, you know, they're the female versions of Superman and Batman who at this time were best chums. And like I said, I just always kind of took that for granted, but whether I did or not, I, I still always like that. And, and being able to look back on this era and, and see this, I, I just, it gives me the warm fuzzies. I really like these these characters, and I miss the both of them. You know, in, you know, in this version, it's kind of funny. She says, "You know, they're they're awaiting the end with their loved ones," and and it, and it occurs to me that this is going to sound weird. I think people back then, which was us, because we were alive, mm-hmm. probably had more of a fear of the end of the world because of oh, yeah. the tensions between the u.s and the ussr mm-hmm. so nowadays we worry about chemical attacks and we worry about terrorist attacks but you know I, i've talked to people who are like 19 you know in their early 20s and i've asked them have you ever been afraid of nuclear war and they've told me no and that you know that i i'm just like baffled by that because i was terrified of oh, that yeah. when i was a kid so when this came out the idea of the end of the world was was kind of a very real thing to people. So I wonder if it resonated a lot better in 1985 than someone reading it in 2015. You know, that's something I'd never ever thought of before. But I think you hit on a great point. Yeah, that that could that this series could be playing into those fears and feelings that a lot of us had uh, in the eighties of that sense of doom hanging over our heads. Yeah. I know I definitely had it because uh, you know, I had a military base in my backyard and, uh, and I can remember not long after watching the day after on TV, which was a movie in the eighties about, you know, the nuclear war and, and the effects on the survivors which is so cheesy now. I, I saw it not long ago, and I'm like, "Wow, this really sucks." But at the time, it was well, pretty it scared intense. The hell out yeah, of it scared the hell out of <laughs> America. I mean, it was a big deal when it was on TV. Not long after that aired on TV, we had a minor earthquake in upstate New York, which is virtually unheard of. And I remember being shaken out of bed by it and convinced that the war had started that something in New York had just been hit by a nuke. 
and scared out of my mind. So yeah, you know, that was a very real thing uh, at, at this time. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a really good point, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, well, to be fair, it just occurred to me. But yeah, it's just uh, end-of-the-world scenarios are so different now. Uh, it's so localized, really, when you mm-hmm. think about it. We're not we're not worried about the entire United States getting nuked, but we're worried about a major metropolitan area getting getting hit from anything from you know gas or you know a, a, a dirty nuclear weapon. So right. it's it's really kind of weird how that's flipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 again, I'm still really still so weirded out that there's this generation of people that didn't have that hanging over their head what a nice childhood you must have had Um, but to be fair there are now kids that are scared of of terrorist attacks so it just it just changes i mean right you know through the 90s i think you know i remember 1991 was the first time i breathed a sigh of relief because uh, when, when when the USSR fell, I was just like, oh, thank God. I don't have to be in perpetual fear of nuclear war now. Right. Uh, and, and that was fine for about ten years. So, <laughs> Do you uh, do you think that this scene with uh, Steve Dayton and John Constantine really doesn't have any place in this issue? Uh, it's funny. I, 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 do ha- I did have some notes on that. Real quick before we move away from that page. Oh, okay. On page two, um, the second panel right there, I've, just, I've always really liked the way uh, Kara's vision power is depicted mm-hmm. right there. Because in the other panels, it's, it's very much the way you traditionally see it in comics. But in that one, it's almost like a, a two-dimensional beam coming out of her, her eyes. It's, it's, just, it's hard to kind of explain verbally, but I, I love that image. Uh, but yeah, flipping ahead to the the date and say, here's the thing with this. Uh, I did have several uh, notes on this. For one, uh, that top panel on page three, love, love, love mm-hmm. that panel. But where is Supergirl's cape? Is it supposed to be that it's a, a, a red streak, and that's why we're not? I, seeing I always kind of took it that it's basically f- uh, folded up on her back and is now just streaking behind her. Right. So instead of being flared out like. Perez sometimes draw capes. It's uh, kind of like just the wind has caught it in a certain way, and you're not seeing it behind her. Okay, I can buy that, I guess. Uh, but yeah, the Constantine scene. Well, here's the thing with this: is um, you know, while this interlude here doesn't do much for the story in this issue, or even the story of Crisis overall, and it might not make much sense to someone just reading this title alone or this issue alone swamp thing was one of the titles most closely um in tune so to speak with crisis on infinite earths because um not long ago i went back and and reread the alan moore run on swamp thing and while crisis is happening and i'm talking issues that are not necessarily even bannered as crisis crossovers or anything just the ones kind of leading up to crisis you can definitely feel that that book is is very tied in and very parallel to the events. And, and you can kind of feel Crisis ramping up in Swamp Thing in a way that I think most other titles kind of missed it. Other titles may, may have had a monitor appearance, you know, pre-Crisis monitor appearance, and they may have had crossover issues. But most of those felt kind of shoehorned. They didn't feel natural. Whereas I think Moore did a really good job 
of tying in the crisis to things that were happening in Swamp Thing in a very organic way. And one of the things I really like in that title that is kind of sort of touched on here is that John Constantine, we don't know a lot about him at this time. Pardon me. He's a very enigmatic figure. But one of the things I really like in that is there's an issue where Constantine kind of takes Swamp Thing on sort of a cosmic journey to kind of expand his awareness and he takes him to the monitor satellite and he explains the nature of the you know the the impending crisis and what it's going to mean but then he also at the end of it assures him that you know what things are going to be all right it's actually all going to work out it's going to be a rough patch but it's the things that are going to come after is why I'm prepping you and preparing you because the mystical world is kind of going to be left in chaos after this whole thing. And so that's what I take away from this scene here is that, again, it might not make a lot of sense to, if you're not steeped in swamp thing, but there's a great moment here um, where he says, I'm trying to find where he says it here. He says, uh, Oh, he goes, my friend, he goes, we're not going to die. None of us, not you, not me, certainly not this earth. And Dayton accuses him of being naive, but it's because, and Constantine explains this, he has a sense of what's happening. He understands and can somehow see the big picture. And I kind of like that. I I like how it ties into this. Uh, Unfortunately, none of this is footnoted. I, I think there's only one of these interlude scenes, if I remember properly, that does actually have a footnote to where you can gain more of that story. And... I'll be honest, as much as I love this title and, and I, I'm always woe to say negative things about it, I will say negative things about that only because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I bitch when they do this in current day crossovers, so I can't give this series a pass for doing the same thing. For having interludes and intercuts like this that if you want the big picture, see this other book, at, but they don't tell you where the other thing is. So, yeah, this particular scene would seem very disjointed if you weren't up on the bigger universe at the time. That's fair. I mean, again, I, I haven't read those issues of Swamp Thing, so... It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. Um, s- somebody sent them to me, and at some point I will read them. I have a question that uh, is either for you or the listening audience. Um, on the bottom of page three, the last panel right there, Dayton calls um, Constantine. He says, my longtime friend... I'm very curious, did Steve Dayton ever appear in Hellblazer? Because I am totally unfamiliar with that series. I kind of lost track of Constantine after he became a big deal and got his own book and went off to to live in the Vertigo universe. I I lost complete track of him. So I'm just curious if that ever plays out, you know, beyond this. Uh, That I couldn't tell you. That would be more up like Andy Leyland's alley. I, I hope he's listening and that he will uh, he will provide us an answer one way or the other. And it also got me to thinking, what the hell ever happened to Steve Dayton anyway? He's another character I just kind of lost track well, of over time. Well, he went crazy there for a while. Right. Uh, and, and like, had that weird blue costume because he was a big part of, like, Blue Beetle. I remember him being in that title. Mm-hmm. And then in the Titans itself. That's a question for Tom Paneris. I know he... 
I think anyway, I think he got cured eventually, but beyond that, like I said, I just kind of lost track of him. I don't, I don't know, you know. And again, I think everything got changed. It's like, you know, we, we're both very big fans of John Byrne, but I think we can, uh, we, and maybe you do disagree with this, but I think one of his missteps was his Doom Patrol revamp from around 2004. I I've, uh, believe it or not, I've actually never checked it out. I've I've long been curious to check it out, but um, it's one of those things, much like Spider-Man Chapter One, that I have been heavily warned away from. So I, I just have never gotten uh, around to checking it out. But it looked interesting. But um, judge, you know, strictly judging a book by a, by its cover, it looked like it was a reboot within the continuity and that bugged me because it was like john 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 why why are you doing this why are you doing a reboot within well, post-crisis continuity so that was another reason i kind of stayed away from it because i don't want to actively dislike john Byrne. so you know i i stayed away from something that i thought would probably irritate me <laughs> that's fair that's fair it has to be pointed out you know, I, you know, you know, I love me some George Perez. He's he's one of my absolute favorite uh, artists. But occasionally, as much as I love him and as much as I, I love this book, there are occasionally characters that I just don't like his interpretation of. Constantine is definitely one of them here. Constantine here looks nothing like comic book Constantine and not a thing like Sting, who was the model for yeah. Constantine. And it just has to be pointed out. He looks like Barry Allen is what he looks like. So it's just kind of <laughs> A little weird. bit. Yeah. It's like John Constantine if he really cleaned up his act. <laughs> Here's a note for you. I don't know if you caught this or not. So page four, it's the sixth panel, the one of the uh, of the earth being destroyed. There's text on either side of that panel. On the right side, the text says, after that, only... Now, I'm looking at the uh, Absolute Edition. It says, uh, after that, only five others remain. It's talking about Earths. If you look in the same page in the original uh, uh, printed comic edition, it says four. Yeah. Now, the reason for that is, at this time, DC hadn't yet made up its mind where the Charlton universe and the Charlton heroes fit into this scheme so that was a decision that was actually made further down the line and we we will see those uh you know that effect and everything so i don't i don't want to spoil ahead on it but that's the reason for the discrepancy here whereas it says four in the original narrative and then it was corrected later to five because essentially this does come down to five universes um that the monitor is attempting to salvage out of you know the the infinite uh number that we started with um i don't have anything else on that page did you uh just pariah's o face (laughs) oh it gives a meaning a whole different oh why'd you have to point that out because people, people no, because people have hit artists in contemporary eras of, uh, of you know, basically flat out copying porn, uh, ah. and, that, and I don't think Perez did that here. It's just that kind of looks like that. So, but it's it, it still the, the the shocked look works for me. So, but it's still like, oh god, ew, really? <laughs> ew. Uh, page five, I think it's nice seeing an earth that is completely different from the others. And I really, I like the look of this earth. I, I like what, uh, what Perez came up with here. I mean, you can definitely see the, the parallels with like the bus like 
vehicle and things like that. But it is very different. It's uh, it's much more like sci-fi looking, but it, it's really cool. I like this a lot. I I did take issue with the no duplicates here already an impossibility, which isn't quite true. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Earth X, the heroes came over from Earth Two. Right. So there there weren't any superheroes, and you know. I guess you know they hadn't made their minds up about Earth Four, so you can kind of give that a pass. But no, there there were a bunch of different you know Earths. It's like, is he considering like the fact that Superman and all of them exist in comic books on Earth Prime that 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 works? It's just that kind of stood out to me when I was reading this, yeah, and, and typing up the synopsis. Yeah, it's it's not really true, and we're going to see future examples where it, it bears it out even that much more that it, it's not necessarily true. But I'll, I'll give Pariah kind of a pass on it because he's just he's kind of talking to himself to begin with anyway, and he's he's under duress and all that all that craziness with uh, with Pariah. But yeah, he doesn't exactly know what he's talking about in this part. Now, page five. Those uh, fourth and fifth panels where Lord Vault lays hands on Pariah and tries to, to zap him with his electrical powers and then he himself is zapped. I think it might be this sequence that has lent into my belief that it was Pariah himself or, or some uncontrollable manifestation of his you know weirdness or whatever that zapped Psycho Pirate back in issue two. Remember I said before that I, yeah. I always was under the impression that it was Pariah doing that to Psycho Pirate, and then over time I've realized that, no, 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 it's it's Arion knocking him away. But I always yeah. used to think that, and I think this is why I thought that, is because here he's doing nothing other than telling Vault, don't touch me, and that's when he gets shocked. So, yeah, it, it's... It, it, you know, I don't really like Pariah, but he does have some interesting qualities to him. This is one of them, is this fact of that, you know, he, he is untouchable, he's immortal, nothing seems, you know, even the destruction of universes doesn't kill him. He, I think he has great potential, I just felt like it never really goes much of anywhere. Well, he, he doesn't really have a character. No. You know, he's, he's there to cry, essentially. Right. Uh, and he outside of you know saving lady quark he doesn't really do a whole lot either no. so it's just like alexander luther has more to do than pariah does right so it's, it's just really kind of strange i mean i'm not I'm not saying that they shouldn't have had him there because he is a you know for, for as a reader he's a point character for us he's the one that we're kind of like we're seeing the destruction through his eyes almost in most of these scenes. Right. So, you know, on that I can't fault it. But yeah, uh, on the other hand, he's just there's just not much to him. Right. Now, I can't remember if this question ever gets answered within the series or not, but it begs asking here, why is Pariah able to save Lady Quark when he was unable to save anyone else up to this point? Because remember, we see that scene yes. of him trying to save the little boy, I think it was in the first issue... And he was unable. The, the boy got basically sucked out of his hands and, and absorbed by the antimatter wall. But here he can save Lady Quark. Is that answered later? Uh, I don't remember. I always, if I'm going to have to come up with a no prize, I would have to say that this was part of the Monitor's plans all along. 
Right. Uh, if that is the case, boy, is he counting on a lot of stuff happening uh, for that to work. But right. that's kind of comics. I mean, right. when, when you look at most plans of supervillains, they depend on something, like like things having happening in an exact order. And the fact that they happen in that exact order is because that's how the writer is, is wanting it. You know, I think Perez, or Wolfman, excuse me, I think Wolfman wanted some survivors and some examples of the other Earths. And to have Lady Quark, I mean, there, there's, there's story potential there. She is the last remaining survivor of an entire universe. Right. So, And she doesn't want to go. Uh, you know, she wants to die with her family. And the, and the death of Leanna on page six is, is actually kind of touching. Yeah. You know, it, it's really sad. And in page seven, especially the way you have the multiple, you know, monitor, you know, you, you have the, what's happening. And then you have the monitor watching it on the, uh, on the screen. And it's really subtle art wise on page seven when it switches to that. Mm hmm. Uh, and I and I really liked it, uh, but it's just, you know, I never glommed on to Lady Quark. Uh, I mean, to be honest, the first experience I really had with her was in the pages of the Will Payton Star. I wondered series. if you were going to say that, yeah, uh, because I, you know, I, I read Crisis So Piecemeal that that was my first real experience, and in that issue, she runs into Pariah and she's like, "F off!" I mean, seriously, it's kind of funny right. to watch because she thinks Starman is would be a good mate, I guess. Right. And and I never read Legion ninety whatever. Yeah, I was gonna, just going to mention that because she did go off to become a member of Legion, and I read that title for a time, and I can't remember now why I didn't keep up with it, but I wish I had because I know bits and pieces of what became of her but i i've never actually read it i'd really like to 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 kind of gain you know gain the 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 full uh story on that so i might have to go back and uh, and fill that in and read that at some point but uh i i did like her and i couldn't really tell you why but i i always i'm probably just because she spins out of this series i guess but i was always curious to keep up with her um, and, and I never really did beyond, you know, her popping up in, uh, in Starman, which was a title I was devoted to. I love that book. And, uh, and I have the issues like when she joined Legion and, and part of that run, but I, I didn't follow through on the entire thing because I think for a time she wound up, uh, she was with, she hooked up with somebody on that team. I can't remember who it was. Valor, maybe. I can't remember. I'm I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and check that out at some point. I can't remember, but yeah, I think I think part of the reason, if if I'm remembering properly, I think part of the reason that she wound up on Legion in the first place was again, she kind of had that Maxima thing going where she was just hunting for a mate that was Mm -hmm. you know a suitable replacement for Lord Vault in her mind, and I think that's why she wound up with Legion, and I think she ended up hooking up with. A character on that team, Valor, or maybe Captain Comet. I, I, Jesus, I just can't remember. But uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I've read that, so I'll have to go back and check that out at some point. But that that wasn't a bad book. Hmm. Uh, let's see what else have we got here in the notes. Um, I'm gonna talk briefly about this little sequence uh, on pages uh, eight through uh, ten with. Uh, with the, the formation of the new, new Dr. Light. But before we do that, I just have to point out that um, 
One of the things with this issue is I think the inks are inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Most of it's pretty good, but it really has to be pointed out. Pages 8, 9, and 10 in particular, I'm not sure what's going on here, but the inking is very weak on these three pages. It, and it's weak to a point that it almost has the appearance of being inked by someone different than the rest of the book. And I, I just I can't quite put my finger on it, but the 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 uh characters all look doughier somehow. Like look at the monitor in that very first panel on page eight. He looks poofy. Like a yeah. boxer after a fight or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he's all poofy faced and and uh, and the Japanese men all look very kind of poofy and everything as well. So I'm not sure what was going on with the inks here, but it, it is a very different. Maybe uh, maybe DiCarlo was experimenting or something. I'm really not sure, but uh, it goes from being very light inks in most of the book to very very heavy inks here. And I'm not sure what the what the deal is, but I couldn't. Maybe help the layouts it. weren't as detailed, so he had to put more effort into it essentially maybe i also wonder if maybe this sequence isn't uh wasn't produced afterwards or something that's entirely possible it's 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 a good scene Mm -hmm. i one of the things i like about this dr light uh and she's not like one of my favorite characters I, i think she's fine is that you know wolfman created a hero who was kind of a jerk yeah she's a bitch yeah she really is I mean, even if she was a man, we wouldn't want this kind of behavior from the person who's going to get superpowers. Right. Uh, You know, because... But it's one of those things where, in terms of story, you kind of needed her personality uh, to serve serve it. And that's probably why the Monitor chose her. But here, you know, like, she's, she's dressing down her... Her uh, subordinates, you know, they're bowing with respect. One of which is her father. Yeah, she ball busts one of her her dad, (laughs) you know, like in front of God and everybody. And then it's just basically like, okay, you cowards, just go home. I'll take care of this. And the only time that breaks is right before the beam hits her. We get that one panel on page nine of of like a look of fear. And then there's that scream and then nothing. So... I, I, I always liked her introduction because it's very unique in terms of, of superheroes, essentially. I'm not a fan of edits in reprints. And I just wanted to, to note here that in the Absolute Edition on page 9, that there's that panel you're talking about where she has the fear on her face. Two panels to the left of that where she's saying something is happening on its surface... They actually removed an an editor's footnote that says "See Omega Men number twenty six. It's actually missing from the reprint. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I. It's interesting that the characters that that get brought into this that are important or semi important to the story overall that felt like they were they were going to be important later in the DC universe many of which it just sadly didn't turn out to be that way unfortunately yeah you had a great catch on page 10 that i'm embarrassed to say i've never realized before where you've got the monitor watching dr light's creation and then you've got 
Harbinger, watching the monitor, watch Dr. Light's creation. And then you've got Alexander Luthor watching Harbinger, watching the monitor, watching. And it's great. I never caught that before. When I was typing it up, I'm like... Because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be kind of linear with the, with the synopsis, and I'm like, well, he's a bunch of... So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to collapse this all into one sentence. Right. Uh, and, and, and I was hoping that it didn't come off too snarky, because there, there was a little snark <laughs> in there. But it's just... Uh, it, it's both a, a, a critical analysis, a revelation, and a what the hell. Because it's just like, you basically have a scene where everyone's watching each other. Well, what this reminds me of, and... and... You have to forgive me. I know you haven't seen it, but there's a, a great scene. And by great, I mean it's great because it's hilarious. In Escape from the Planet of the Apes, where the scientist who's essentially the bad guy in the in the movie is trying to give an explanation of how time travel works. And so he goes on this really weird tangent about this picture. And it's a picture of an artist drawing a landscape. And then it draws back to, and you realize that the artist is painting a picture of himself painting the landscape. And then it draws back again, and you've got another artist drawing himself, drawing himself, painting, you know, and it just keeps going back to infinity. And after a time, as interesting as the scene is, you get to realize the hell does this have to do with anything? <laughs> and, it, and that's what this reminds me of as it keeps just drawing back and you see another layer and another layer and another layer. That's the first thing that occurred to me was that scene from that movie. It just, it cracked me up. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I, I don't think I had a single note on, uh, on page 11. Did you have anything on page? 11? Not really. Uh, I, I liked Red Tornado. By the time I read this, it was after I had gotten the Red Tornado Superpowers figure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so oh, I, I always wanted that. Uh, I just found it randomly at a department store when I was like twelve years old, and my aunt bought it for me. So, I think I had the the Justice League line, you know, from the from the animated series. I mm-hmm. think I have had or have that one somewhere. But yeah, I always wanted that Superpowers one. Red Tornado is one of those characters I always liked. The look of him, I think mm-hmm. he looks great. I just never really read a great Red Tornado story. You know what I mean? Well, he was kind of, and and, and Rob Kelly's probably going to scream at me for this, but uh, he always struck me, and having never read them, so when, once I read the stories, it'll be different. He always struck me as kind of like the vision for the Justice League. Oh, definitely, very much so. It's funny because as we record this, just last night I recorded a new um, episode of Avengers Spotlight um, over on Back to the Bins, and we were talking about the same thing. We were making comparisons between the Vision and the Red Tornado. The funny thing is, is that when I really think about it, though, is that while I think they both obviously have their similarities, both being red androids and all that, I find that actually I think Martian Manhunter, Manhunter is more the parallel yeah. for the Vision than uh, than Red Tornado is. And that's why probably you had, if I'm remembering correctly, from JLA versus Avengers, that was the fight. Yeah, see, I thought it was, but I, I wasn't sure. I almost mentioned that in the episode, and then I got to thinking, uh, am I right in that? Am I remembering that right? But I, I thought that that was probably the case. Um, now here's something that just occurred to me. Is this tying into... Wasn't there a Red Tornado Mini that was out right around this same time? I want to say 
is it Kurt Busiek? Yeah, Kurt Busiek yeah. and Carmine Infantino did that. Yeah. Uh, there's Does that a, tie into this? I have no idea. I have never read it. I, I know there's a back issue article <laughs> actually written by Rob Kelly that, that, that covers Red Tornado that I think is in one of the more recent issues. Oh, wow. Uh, unless it was an issue from like three years ago and I'm just not remembering it, in which case, I'm sorry, Rob. Uh <laughs> But uh, I, I've 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 looked at that mini. It's it's like a lot like the, a lot of the miniseries from this time period. I look at them and go, I really need to read that. Ooh, look, candy. Right. Yeah. So well, the the sad thing is, I think I have it. I think I may have even bought it off the stands when it was new. I, I myself have never read it, so yeah, I, I don't remember. Um, I know it's not bannered. For crisis or anything, it may not even be in the same year. But just looking at this sequence, um, and and it feeling kind of like just you know it just kind of happens and we move quickly on, kind of makes me wonder: is this time? Because that's a a lot of these scenes in here do tie into other things. It's why it annoys me a little bit that there's not footnotes. And I'm not sure if this is one of them, and I, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that it, it's just a one-panel thing where, you know, the, the enemy abducts Red Tornado, and it kind of looks like it might be important, but then we quickly move on to something else. So I'm wondering, you know, do, is this tying in from something else? Because what's kind of going on in this issue is we're seeing the beginning of Wolfman cooperating with other... Um, what would be the word, Mike? Uh, I don't want to say like dynasties or whatever, but you know, other editorial teams to mm-hmm. incorporate bits and pieces of what was going on in in their individual um, titles and and properties and bringing them into crisis. And we're going to see a lot more of that. But this is kind of the beginning of that. You know, we got it with the Swamp Thing scene. We're going to get it with the Wonder Woman scene, things like that, where they were trying to bring in more of a feel of this is truly universal for for the dc universe this is affecting everybody and so we're we're clearly going to see crisis spill over into those titles but we're also seeing those titles spilling over into crisis which is one of the reasons i think crisis works as well as it does but that's with the caveat that you are versed on the universe which this is one of the few times in comics i was really up on the universe at the same time that one of these giant events was happening as well yeah, I uh I always feel I'm always conflicted on those scenes because on one hand I want the story to flow and not be interrupted, but on the other hand if you are plugged into everything going on, it it it's just an added bonus for you. So Right. It's like one of those things where they're like, "Well, we, we we're going to write this so that you only have to read that bullshit." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Well, it's one of the reasons I wanted to point it out in this because I know I promised not to talk about this, but I'm just going to mention it briefly. Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis didn't work for me on a whole lot of levels, but one of the levels it didn't work for me on was the fact that it it felt like it was constantly interrupted with little scenes and vignettes that I consciously realized were doing the exact same thing that's being done here, bringing in elements of other ongoing titles. But the problem was, is I wasn't as versed on the rest of the universe at the time. I'd pretty much narrowed my focus to Superman. So anything that wasn't Superman relevant, I had a hell of a time trying to follow it. Well, I can't, in all consciousness, I can't be critical of that and not be critical of this at the same time because they're both kind of doing the same thing. And while... I want to say it's done so much more more masterfully here. 
I don't know if, in all honesty, I can really say that because while I don't like the the second story near as much, I don't think it's as good a story. Isn't it essentially following the same model? I'm I'm not sure mm-hmm. on that. You know what I mean? So I, I think that if I'm going to criticize the one, then that same criticism kind of has to flow over into this one as well. To you know, just to that degree. Just to be honest. Page 12, so we finally see what became of Firestorm and Killer Frost, where they went off to. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit it, I had completely forgotten about this. Maybe just because it's only just the two pages, but I I honestly did not remember this scene at all. Um, I love that uh, Firestorm meets Sir Justin. I thought that that was really cool. I just, I, I don't know why, but I did not remember this at all. Yeah, I the only reason it stood out to me th- that I that I remembered it is because it involved Vandal Savage. Vandal Savage, yeah. And I think around the time I read this was when I was reading early issues of the Wally West Flash series where he was the main bad guy. Mm-hmm. So it's like it was it was a funny bit of, of of happenstance where two things I was reading from two different periods really uh kind of converging and 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 becoming one. Uh, I had no idea who Sir Justin was now that we've covered so much of All-Star Squadron and I've read that series. Uh, I get a lot more out of this sequence. Uh, especially, you know, Firestorm says, you know, well, Firebrand told me about him. I'm like, did she tell you she made out with him? Because she, <laughs> she made out with him. May have done a little more. Virtue and honor, my ass. <laughs> uh, there is a sequence on page 13, though, that that, that I snicker at, and it's, and it's not anybody's fault, but when Justin... Holds aloft his magic sword and says, "By the power of Grayskull." Um, there at the bottom, I, I hear the He-Man music. Right. <laughs> if he would have yelled, "I have the power!" before, uh, <laughs> I would have just died. The, 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 the young He-Man fan in me would have been very happy with that. But I got the same. To be fair, I got the same thing uh, when uh, in, in Thor, when the hammer comes back to him after he's killed by the Destroyer. Right. I'm really surprised somebody hasn't like done an overdub of like the He-Man music <laughs> uh, as that happens. Maybe I gotta get into video editing at some point. God, I don't have the time for that. <laughs> now, here's a question for you. I-, I love this scene, and I'm willing to criticize it, but I'm just curious here. He holds up his sword, and it is uh, the art in this part is just beautiful. He draws a great shining knight, but he holds up his sword, and the sword is hit by lightning absorbs the lightning and then he throws it back at the shadow demons destroying a bunch of them have Uh we ever seen him use his sword like this before i don't remember (laughs) i mean he he literally like catches the lightning on his sword and then throws it at the enemy and it just that really struck me as whoa when did he gain that power and will we ever see this again (laughs) yeah exactly yeah just now he did um Quick question for you. This is, you know, as it says right in the caption, this is Earth 2. Wasn't Vandal Savage a Superman villain for a time right he, before the crisis? He came over from Earth 2. He did. Okay, so it is the same one then. Yeah, it's the same one. And and if I'm remembering correctly, it was Vandal Savage because Wolfman's idea that, it, you know, originally his idea for for revamping both Brainiac and Lex Luthor was that Lex Luthor would be a businessman that Superman right. could touch. So he had to do Vandal Savage. And I remember really liking those issues when I read them. So it's why I kind of consider Vandal Savage kind of a Superman villain as well as a Justice Society villain. 
as well as a Flash villain. So that guy gets around. What now, a whore. I, I, I remember when we were talking about the concepts that, you know, and, and essentially the breakdowns that Wolfman had for these issues, and this scene sounds like it was going to be a lot bigger. I know that it was going to involve the demon. Was Is there somebody else it was supposed to involve, too, that I'm forgetting, or was it just the demon? Uh, let's look at what the thing says. I, I don't remember. Uh, and I just read the thing, too, so... Because my initial note on this is, is is a shame that they couldn't work the demon into it, but it, that's probably just because it's only just the two pages, and it's pretty action-packed and, and full as it is. But if this had been intended to be a bigger scene, then it is kind of a shame that they weren't able to, to work it. Off the top of my head, I can't remember... Yeah, it was going to be... It, it was going to be the uh, Simon, Firestorm, Killer Frost, Viking Prince, Shining Knight, General Immortus, and the Demon in Europe. Yeah. So that was going to be in issue two. Yeah, Viking Prince. That was the one I was trying to think of, Viking Prince, because I like him as well. Yeah, him I, I'm pretty sure we we either have already seen or we will see. I can't remember the Demon, um, whether we see him in this or not i'm, I'm uh, sure we yeah it's more point. towards issue 10 with all okay. the mystical characters all right i know that at this uh at the same time that he was playing an important role over in swamp thing but i i couldn't remember his uh his role here if there was much of one um there's a great crack here on page 13 that third panel where uh Firestorm says, come on, Shiny, these things may be a pain in the scabbard, but they kind of fold in the crutch. <laughs> I just think that's funny, a pain in the scabbard. I thought that was a good line. <laughs> However, it has to be pointed out that uh, these shadow demons aren't near as hard to defeat as the ones that we've seen yeah. the heroes previously face. Uh, I mean, they take them out pretty readily. Because here we see uh, Killer Frost freeze a whole bunch of them in a giant block. Yeah. But previously when they fought them, she froze them and they just came out of it because they're just shadows. So yeah, it's it's very inconsistent in this part, I thought. Now uh looking at the the page in the original comic and then in the uh the absolute for page 14, it it really illustrates to me just how much better the art looks in the absolute format. Mhm. Because I absolutely love how the the two bottom rows, you know, you've got these horizontal rows at the bottom, they parallel each other. So you've got the the middle row showing the locales, and you've got the Old West, you've got Atlantis, you've got uh, the Great Disaster, and you've got uh, uh, World War II Markovia as the locales. And then underneath them, you have the superheroes and the, and the characters in each of those locales. I just, I love the way that this is drawn. It's so subtle. Um, some people might not even catch that, you know, it's paralleling on each one, but I just, I love that. I think that it's so cool. Yeah, I, I still also, don't care for Perez's Jonah Hex though. <laughs> I also like that the enemy, uh, now whether or not it was originally that the anti-monitor was supposed to look like the monitor, but the mm-hmm. shadow demons, when they form, they always look like the monitor. Right. In, 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 just in an outline form. Uh, and it's never commented on uh, in this issue, but especially on page 14 in that third panel, it's very apparent 
that he's kind of supposed to look like they're supposed to look like it and then the the shapes get a little more muddled uh depending mm-hmm. on the locale i mean like the one on in, in the fourth panel kind of just looks like a rounded off you know like you know monster almost almost like in that episode of the super friends where they were fighting that that muck thing right if you remember so i wish i i wish i had a better grasp of the super friends he looks and like the, the 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 silhouette of the stay puff marshmallow man <laughs> <laughs> what did you do scott <laughs> Uh, page 15, unless you've got anything else nope. on 14. I like here, and it, it took me a minute to catch it, that it's told entirely in the dialogue, but apparently the monitor's towers just kind of beam into a scene, mm-hmm. which is something I had wanted. We had speculated about that before. Like, do these things just kind of pop up overnight, or is it, you know... Is there uh, a construction uh, crew that comes yeah, exactly. in, puts up a bunch <laughs> of scaffolding? They- exactly. And here we we don't see it. It's told to us, but that is essentially what happens is uh, you've got Batman saying, hold on, something's shimmering. And then uh, Cole says, it's some sort of tower. And then when we finally get the perspective of what the heroes are seeing, we see that another tower has formed in uh, in New York City. And I think that's great. That third panel, the, we see a shot of the tower for the first time. And there's a DC Comics uh, bullet logo on a billboard there right beneath it which i think is just great i love that and and a sony sign as well yeah (laughs) great scene i love the coloring effect of dr light using her powers in the final panel on page Mm -hmm. 15 uh it pops better in the absolute edition but it looks good here and 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 i just love how like right from the beginning she is just like you idiots i know what i'm doing stay the f back i mean seriously So, and then on then on page sixteen, Superman goes and talks to her, of course, in Japanese because Superman speaks every language. Um, But it's so great because she's you know she's supremely arrogant, and Superman instead of like you know what you would think he might do, which is like, well, no, lady, look, I'm Superman, I know what I'm doing. He's just like, okay, tell me what I need to do. If you know what what to do, lead the way. Right. Really like that. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I think that's a really good scene because while she's very acerbic and everything, he, he realizes that she is on their side as well, you know, despite you know her having no people skills. I, I, I do like that. I really like the scene of Superman streaking into action uh-huh. because up to this point, he's been there, but he's just another hero in the crowd. And this is for the moment, this is Superman kind of taking charge. And there's a great little piece of dialogue here with, uh, with halo and changeling where she says, uh, there goes Superman changeling. That new Dr. Light won't stop him. And changeling says, yeah, the big probs kind of go poof when old red, uh, old red S is around. And I just, I love that. I love when the other heroes are in awe of Superman. I, I just think that's great. And the Always artwork on this page, and that third to last panel where Superman's just kind of hovering in the air, and the mm-hmm. white death isn't ah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, well, I like the other shot where uh, where he comes. You know, the, that's that first panel in the bottom of the page. There, uh, Perez would use that pose for Superman quite often, and to me, it always looks like uh, like a throwback, like an homage to other artists. Because I know that uh, that Wayne Boring would frequently draw Superman kind of like that, with 
with one leg extended and then one, you know, the other leg bent like that while he was in the air or flying or landing or something. And I, I really like that. It's very subtle, but it, it really looks good. It's just kind of a, a, a visual callback to, you know, this era of Superman, essentially. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. I didn't make a whole lot of sense of the Wonder Woman scene. Yeah, I'm hoping when I finally read the crossover issues that these that this will make a little more in the way of sense and all that. I mean, it's it's a dramatic scene, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, because apparently the Amazons aren't going to help Wonder Woman save man's world. And and it's kind of scary that the gods are like, okay, sorry, can't, can't do anything, deuces, and yeah. just like you know, it it it, it would be horrible. Like, let, let's say that there was going to be a nuclear war, and God showed up and said, "You guys are on your own." Bye. Yeah. I mean, that would be just like awful. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I feel bad for the Amazons here. That could have uh, that could have been played out a lot more, I think. Play, you know, played up a little bit more because how scary a concept would that be? Now, that your gods just said, eh, "Well, we uh, we're, we're bugging off now because we we can't save you, and we might not be able to save ourselves either." Now, Good luck. I, I do have a small critique with the art on that in those five panels. Is that you see Wonder Woman? Uh you know, thinking, and she's wearing a pink, uh, like a pinkish robe. Mm -hmm. But then in that fourth panel, it looks like the statue is thinking the thoughts that's in the background. And it looks like Wonder Woman's ready for battle, but that's not Wonder Woman, that's a statue that's in the background. Right. It's kind of weird. That that balloon placement was bad, is is, I guess what I'm saying. Well, yeah, the Kirby Crackle just beneath it does look like it it's almost like it's tied to the statue like the statue's thinking you're right i hadn't i hadn't noticed that before well this is a little taste of uh of what's in wolfman's future mm-hmm. absolutely and, uh, yeah i like this a lot because this wonder woman here looks very similar to the wonder woman that he would uh he would eventually take over uh page 17 uh, when we get to the bottom half of the panel, because the Wonder Woman parts at at the top of the of the page here, and then the lower half is uh, where we go back to the monitor satellite, and Pariah shows up. You know, from the bottom half of this page, pretty much through the end of the book, I, I, I really like this. You know, the the first half of this book, um, I'll be honest, it isn't my favorite chapter of Crisis. Um, and you know, and I touched on a lot of this before about you know the the criticisms I've heard leveled against. Uh, the story and everything for you know the interjection and the and the kind of you know the the cut scenes and it, it just I don't want to say it feels cluttered or anything but it, it kind of in a lot of ways it kind of throws off the narrative and again I think without having footnotes in a lot of those scenes and everything it it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't give the casual reader a, a feel of exactly what all is going on you you kind of have to be steeped in the entire. Uh, universe to to get that bigger picture and i get a taste of that with the wonder woman scene because i don't know what that's referring to so i i can only imagine what the entire book would be to somebody who's just trying to read this title without really being steeped in anything else that was happening at dc at the time but from this point forward 
Uh, I mean, this issue contains one of my absolute favorite sequences of the entire crowd. You know, literally the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And and we get to see that with, you know, we're told that it's both Earth 1 and Earth 2 coming to their end. And it's not just that it's it's told to us. I mean, we actually see it and it looks pretty much the same way that we have seen earths die in the previous issues so for me as a 17 year old reading this for the first time in in 1985 right off the stands this blew my mind because it was like oh my you know oh my god what are they dead you know what's going to happen and you're only four issues in, you know, and, and I knew that it was going to be a 12 issue maxi. So it's I mean, it's just the possibilities, man. You know, the you know, what what was going to come beyond this point just was uh, was just mind boggling stuff to me. But I, I just I absolutely love uh, how this issue ends and it and it kind of retroactively makes up for you know a lot of the not I'm not saying I don't like the beginning part of the issue. It's no, just, I think it's that's not, what you're saying, Scott. You just need to be honest with yourself. <laughs> it's not the strongest uh, narrative-wise. Uh, it's not as strong as some of the other ones. I don't think it's quite as straightforward as some of the other ones because, as I said, we're seeing the beginning of, of the interjection of these other character beats uh, in there that are more tied to other titles. But from this point forward, uh, I think it just it, it's great stuff. I, I really like the interaction between... Uh, pariah and the monitor and uh and just these big big action scenes and action sets of the devastation that the the crisis is is wreaking across earths one and two before they die yeah you know it's funny those pages 19 and 20 uh the layout is amazing because you have the monitor's face on the left hand page you have pariah's face on the right hand page and in the middle you have all the scenes of destruction Mm-hmm. And what it kind of reminds me of, in retrospect, is the Order 66 scene in Episode 3. <laughs> yeah. And and I, and I say that because, one, I thought that was one of the stronger scenes from that film. Right. Uh, which I, I think is horribly underrated in terms of what it means to the, to the Star Wars story in, in general. But this isn't uh, my Star Wars story or growing <laughs> up Star Wars, so I will table that for now. But, you know, you see just the different characters going through their paces you see you know superman uh, of earth 2 uh and some other characters that aren't really all that uh, and dawnstar sorry that, that that's kind of a wonky thing right. dawnstar you know fighting the, the the shadow demon and you see lori lamaris leading a group of atlantean heroes and you see a volcano erupting in the old west and the earth 2 heroes just shooting at the sky uh, which is a very common thing for these cosmic stories. You've got all these superheroes and their their big plan is, well, let's just hit it with our powers and see what happens. Right. Uh, but, you know, you see uh, one of the more dramatic ones to me is the Legion panel on page mm-hmm. 20 where Ultra Boy's down, Star Boy's cowering, and Brainiac 5 is just getting decimated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, you know, and, and all through it, you can see this happening. With the narration behind it. There's no sound effects for what's going on other than dramatic music, maybe, and the monitors, you know, you know, explaining how this all works. 
Uh, Pariah looks awful on page 20. That would be my only criticism of this two-page splash. <laughs> is that Pariah suddenly, he kind of looks like uh, like a Kirby female, like, new god type character all of a sudden. Right. So, uh, either that or he just listens, you know, it looks all whiny, so he listens to a lot of Morrissey or Dashboard Confessional or something like that. So. Well, you know, I, I think you're... I think your analogy of uh, of the Order 66 scene, I think that's perfect because that's kind of what's happening here is we're getting vignettes of all the different settings that we've seen so far and a, and a couple bonus ones. And what's really brilliant about this, I didn't even catch the no sound effects thing. That is really cool. Um, but what I think is really brilliant here is that no matter what world it's taking place in what the heroes are doing there's a sense of futility to every one of the panels and that i mean that's an incredible artistic feat to to come off with i mean even the one that in any other book would look like just your standard fight scene the one of starfire metamorpho and halo the look on metamorpho and halo's face gives you that sense of futility like they're doing this they're shooting but it's having absolutely no effect whatsoever. And I've always loved uh, that first panel on page 20, the one of the, uh, of the Earth 2 heroes firing at the sky. There's just something about that that I really, really like. It's very dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, it does beg the question in this scene, though, where's Lady Quark? Because we saw Pariah rescue her from the destruction of her world but then when he materializes in the satellite, she's not with him. So, you know, that's a good that. question. I never really thought about that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, really my last note on the whole thing is, uh, is page 23. One of my absolute single pages of this entire saga is this page where, uh, where the worlds end. I just think that's fantastic. I, I like the framing sequence that actually runs through the cent, you know, diagonally through the center yeah. of Pariah screaming and slowly dissolving as the worlds themselves slowly dissolve on the next page. Um, but you get a little, again, you get a little vignette, a little shot of each of the time frames that the monitor has dispatched heroes to, and in every one of them, invariably, it's a look of of shock, horror. Um, and some of them can even be you know, like the one with uh, Geoforce and Sergeant Rock can al- almost be interpreted as like quiet resolve. Yeah. But in each one of them, they are completely helpless to do anything about it. And, and they just, you know, presumably they die. And uh, man, what an ending, you know? I the, love it. The uh, the death of the monitor is very dramatic. Um, and, you know... Th- Wolf and builds to it and builds to it and finally pulls the trigger on it in page 21. And you would think that after crafting such a scene that he wouldn't kind of ruin it later, but in the novelization, you see the death over and over and over again. Hmm. And the novelization to to Crisis, and I'm not trying to insult Marv Wolfman, I just thought it was wrong-headed. You know, the dual narrators wasn't a problem. Uh, having Flash be the Rogan, Ro, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Crisis, uh, or if you're a Star Wars fan, uh, the Tag and Bink of Crisis, <laughs> uh, you know, 
really just didn't work for me. But the, the, it's like Barry witnesses the death of the Monitor over and over and over again. And I think, you know, when you do that, you remove the power of the sequence. Right. And, you know, because after that, you know, Pariah is just like, what is going on? And, you know, he, you know, you have the slow, you know, you talk about the panel progression on page 23. I thought on 22, when it shows him turning around and crying, which is, you know, should be in Pariah's powers and abilities section of his who's who entry. <laughs> um, I think it really works. And then, you know, having everything kind of not only dissolve to white, but then dissolve to black. Uh, mm-hmm. They would kind of play with that in Zero Hour in the last right. last week before the Zero issue of Zero Hour came out. All of the issues that crossed over into Zero Hour that hour that that week faded to white, and there were no letters pages. Uh, whereas here, you have that dramatic moment, and it's like, hey, let's talk about the previous issue, <laughs> and it's okay, but it's just like I, I think it kind of ruins. Or not ruins, but kind of takes away from the power of the final sequence. Yeah. Uh, Because then you're reminded, oh, we aren't in it. But, uh, having said that, it is a wonderful end-of-the-world moment. I'm like you. I like disaster films. Oh, yes. Uh, One of my my things on my bucket list is I want to play the scientist that uh, has the key to it all in a disaster movie. It's never going to happen, but it's one of my, you know, <laughs> most people it's like I want to climb Kilimanjaro. I want to go meet, you know, the, you know, you know the uh, the Dalai Lama. I want to be a scientist in an in an action disaster movie. So um, low expectation, high satisfaction. Uh, but no, it's a really good ending to the issue. Uh, and it's really sad that this is our last episode because, you know, it looks like there was a lot of potential. Uh, uh, That joke is not funny anymore, so I'm just going to stop. Well, you know, I agree with you, though, that in the reprinted format, I think it has a much bigger punch because Mm -hmm. it just ends. And then you get the, the cover for number five. Whereas, as you say, in the, in the original one, uh, it ends and you get, you know, so welcome, you know, to the, you know, here's our feedback to the first issue. And yeah, it, it does kind of take away from it a little bit. One thing that the original one has on that last page that the reprint doesn't have, unfortunately, is there's a little teeny tiny caption box after the big fade to black that just says to be continued with an excl- or with a question mark, which I think is really nice. But they dropped yeah. it from the reprint. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> love that ending love that ending one thing i wanted to address real quick here just out of the letters page there was a a a, you know again this is feedback in the letters page for crisis on infinite earths number one the first issue uh one of the responses here is addressing something the reader brought up about uh how nice it was to see blue beetle again and the response here just says about blue beetle it doesn't make any difference what earth he is uh because the question was what earth was that uh, what Earthy is and his fellow Charlton, char- uh, Charlton heroes were on, it ain't there no more. For those who ask, the Charlton or Carlton heroes, Blue Beetle, Captain Adam, Thunderbolt, and others, were published by uh, Carlton, Charlton Comics back in the mid-1960s. The editor then uh, who helped in their creation was one Dick Giordano, DC's vice president and inker for The Crisis. When Charlton ceased publication, Dick arranged for DC to buy the characters and publish them. More on that as our plans are firmed up. And so at that point, you know, they're saying right here that there ain't no more. 
I think that, uh, well, I mean, it would just be pure speculation, but I, I think that for whatever reason that, that they were just, maybe they threw them, you know, threw Blue Beetle in as a, as a nod or maybe because Dick Giordano was enamored of those characters and had worked on them and everything. But as we see that those plans are going to change yeah, uh, and we're going to learn that in the very near future that, uh, Oh no, no, no. They're actually going to be incorporated into this whole thing much more fully. Alrighty, going to the compendium and looking at from the first outline and the first plots to these, uh, to this issue, in the outline, issue four is described as the universe's unravel. Monitor tries to stop Lila, but she leaves to join Anti-Monitor, not seen. Monitor is trying to stop the worlds from unraveling and corrects equipment malfunction. Anti-Monitor shows up and we see him for the first time. Then he tries killing Monitor. Monitor sacrifices his life to save the universe. Pariah sees this. Pariah calls back the heroes as the world is reformed into one time-displaced globe. Wonder Woman goes to Hippolyta to, speech the God, to beseech gods, but gods can't do anything. So that's just like, none of that's in here. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but as the plot firmed up a little bit, turning later into the compendium, Issue 4. The heroes have won and await the order to start the machines. Anti-Monitor is still unseen, realizes this, and brings up a band of superheroes to battle the villains, realizing no hero will believe the villain. The villains are now fighting for good. Simon is killed here. Perhaps a few more villains die in their fight. Suggestions? During the course of this, anti uh, excuse me, Red Tornado's programming has changed. He joins with the Anti-Monitor, and it's made clear this change is permanent. Suggestions? Anyone as to how this can be done. The heroes are informed that they have to stop the Monitor while they try. The Antimatter universe spreads and the heroes wait to initiate the machines, but Harbinger kills the Monitor. Spectre, Deadman, Doctor Fate, and Phantom Stranger are captured and rendered useless. Somehow. <laughs> That's my favorite one, somehow. The heroes realize something is wrong as Pariah appears. Monitor is dead, he tells them. Only hope is to activate the machines by themselves. They don't know how, but he instructs them. The antimatter-verse is sweeping through our dimension now, on their own, in a very tense-filled situation. They initiate the machines. This, that's how this chapter ends. What will happen is the antimatter-verse overtakes both Earth-1 and Earth-2. So it's hmm. just like, like, when you read that, it's just like, wow, he completely changed everything about how he was going to do this issue. Yeah. So... I'm kind of glad it, it ended up being the way it ended up because it was much better. But it's just, you know, when you, when you read these, you know, original plans to to final product, the 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 further we get away from the fir- the plot to the first issue, the more different this crisis of infinite on infinite earths uh, ends up being. So it's it's kind of interesting to see all that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, there are some things that are that are vastly different. Uh, and no, man, that I'm sorry. No mention of the Guardians this time, though. So that's that's cool. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's the fun of it, being able to do something like this now, and why why I love uh, the Absolute Edition with the Compendium is that you you get that peek into it that uh, it fires me up because for one, you see things that like oh, I'm really glad that you know that didn't happen or that they changed that or I like what they did so much better. But you also get those little pieces of oh, how cool could that have been if they had mm-hmm. included that in? So you get the best of both worlds with that. I, I love that stuff. I think that's a lot of fun. Well, next time around, 
Well, for one, our very next episode, we will be covering, uh, it will be Tales of the Justice Society of America number 94. We're going to be featuring All-Star Squadron number 47 with the secret origin of Dr. Fate and Infinity Inc. number 16 with the debut of Mr. Bones. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, just to let folks know real quick, if you have wondered about this, if you have sent uh, us feedback, we will be addressing feedback, we promise. Uh, We just, this is kind of a a large episode, and we just don't have time this time around, but uh, we will be doing that in the very near future, so please continue to write in and give us feedback on the show. Let us know what you're thinking of it. Uh, also, I wanted to throw this out real quick because Mike and I had discussed this uh, prior and the decision was to go with the original narrative the way that the original narrative was published. But I know that we have had listeners that have inquired, hey, are you guys going to address that um, Legends of the DC Universe special that was like a missing chapter, so to speak, of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm sure we're going to talk about that at some point, but I just wanted to throw it out there for anybody that's curious that that issue takes place in between this, where we've just left off, and the next issue, you know, if you wanted to check that out. Uh, That is not the order that we're going to be covering it uh, in our coverage, but Again, I just wanted to throw that out there for anybody that was uh, interested in that book or had wondered about our coverage of it. Yeah, I I just think uh, I want to keep as much as we can to what was going on in 1985. Exactly. Uh, And then talk about all the additions and adaptations and all that after the fact, because they were after the fact. Now, to be fair... That Legend of the DC Universe special was important because it was coming out around the same time that the hardcover, uh, the first hardcover reprint of this was coming out. So it's important, but, you know, and and, uh, Wolfman incorporates it in the novelization. and And outside of, you know, talking about it during the death of the Monitor scene... You know, I, 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 we haven't really mentioned the novelization all that much, mostly because it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. I was very disappointed, uh, in, in that, and I will continue saying that. And again, that's nothing personal against Marv Wolfman, because uh, I think he is a fantastic writer. I just don't think that was some of his better work. But uh, now I want to, st- I want to stick with the, with the, with the series as it happened, right? Uh, and then, and then talk about the additions later. Right. No, I completely agree with you. And I, I've got your back on the novel. Um, I was incredibly excited when um, I didn't know it was coming. I actually just found it on a shelf in a bookstore, uh, you know, Walden Books or something when it came out and uh, and was just thrilled. And to this day, I've never finished it. I thought it was a terrible read. I just it, it just it's so weird because it's written by exactly the same author but it doesn't feel anything like the crisis that i remembered and it, and it didn't do what i wanted it to do it didn't adapt the story and it didn't really give me any great insights or anything uh to the story it was just this weird alternate take on the same story that i i just i frankly i just didn't enjoy it and um you know, one of the other reasons that I, I didn't necessarily want to cover that Legends of the DC Universe special during this is I'm I'm totally with you. I want to keep the flavor of 
the event as it happened in 1985, but also I don't know what your feelings are on it. I don't particularly like that special either. It gives me a lot of the same vibe as the novel, which is, eh, you know, you're picking this up way late and you're trying really hard to recapture the same feel, but it just ain't the same. And I can tell the difference kind of thing. I actually haven't read it since it came out. I, yeah. I bought it. I read it. It's, it's sitting out right now, ready to be read, you know, but it's much later in the pile. Right. If you are going to experience the novelization, though, and I will continue to recommend this, uh, pay the thirteen, the fourteen bucks, and get the download from Graphic Audio, because uh, Graphic Audio, the great thing about Graphic Audio is that they can take a book that isn't really all that good, but mm-hmm. they make it better just through their performance of it. Uh, I will definitely agree because I love their adaptation of Infinite Crisis, which is a story mm-hmm. I don't like in the printed form, but I really liked the adaptation of it that they did. So, yeah, I will completely agree with you. Because, you know, it's got a dual narrator because they do have Barry Allen in it. And it is kind of confusing because he doesn't tell it in a linear fashion. He jumps all over the place and replays things. And then you have Barry watching himself do stuff and it's just like really kind of strange but the performances are so strong uh you know and and it goes beyond you know like james konachek doing his usual awesome performance of superman uh but the guy playing psycho pirates really good like you know he's obviously having a ball doing this and it's just uh it's just such a i I recently re-listened to it because my idea was, well, I'll keep up with the novel as it goes through the thing. And then I realized that's that's just going to make me want to punch somebody in the face by the end of the, <laughs> by the end of the whole thing. So I just kind of abandoned it. But uh, I will recommend it, though, because it's a good listen. And really, any of the graphic audio productions are good. Uh, and really, when you think about it, you're paying for the download, unless you want the discs, which are $20. Uh, but the downloads are usually about 14 bucks. Really? $14 for five to seven hours of entertainment, that's, like, that's gold, man. I mean, you pay you pay $20 for a two-hour DVD, and you're done with it in two hours. Right. This, you, you know, I've, I've interviewed Richard Rowan twice now, uh, who, who, did, uh, who directed all the DC productions, and he's kind of stepped back in that, in the Marvel stuff that they're doing. But uh, he, when I interviewed him at one point, he says, well, you kind of live with us. And I'm like, you know what? That's exactly right. You kind of live with that with that production because you're invested in it because you're spending so much time with it. So I uh, can't recommend it enough, even though the, the, the source material isn't all that good, but what they do with it is actually kind of amazing. Uh, as, you know, for, for people who have been following the last three episodes and are like, man, usually you lead off with email, uh, we will address the feedback. Uh, in fact, we, we made an executive decision that we pretty much have to do it in its own episode now because we have gotten so many emails about this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it, we were looking at it the other day when we were recording tales and Scott and I are kind of humbled by the amount of feedback we've gotten. It, 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 I, I really wasn't expecting it. I was expecting people to kind of like the show, you know, cause the people who, who, who write in and say they like it, but for, for new people writing in and, and our old friends kind of like checking in every every issue and every issue sewed. <laughs> we need to you need to trademark that for TTF like quick by the way. Yeah. So, but uh, 
hopefully in about in a week or two, us uh, you know you'll be you'll be seeing an announcement that Scott and I are going to have you know like kind of a side episode where we just deal with all the feedback because it could really take an hour or two just going through all of that. So uh, we have not forgotten about your feedback, and we want and, and as Scott says, uh, because he wants to sound like an old man, keep those cards and letters coming. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. You have reached the end of another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. You can find this show under the Tales of the JSA feed at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can find a plethora of fine programs that span the range of geek subjects like giant monsters to time lords to anime to movie commentaries. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Comics Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Earning My Ears, Back to the Bins, and Growing Up Star Wars. Mike is also on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Longbox, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos, so much so they occasionally address themselves in the third person. If you want to address them, send email to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click the PayPal link. Donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're sponsoring, add a personal message if you want, and you will be an official sponsor of the very next episode with your message read right in the show's opener. It's that easy and there's no minimum donation. Become a show sponsor today! You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks family as a whole when you shop at Amazon. Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of the sale will get kicked back to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the JSA Presents Crisis on infinite Earths. East Hampton estate of Steve Dayton, the world's fifth largest man. Steve is busy drinking himself. <laughs> Read that again, Mike. You said largest man. Really? <laughs> oh, I should, <laughs> I should say. Fat ass. <laughs> I don't know why I said largest. That's weird. Um, There's one for the boober reel. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to actually have to save it this time because that's a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, this is something else for the boober reel.
Steve is busy drinking himself into a stupor, while his guest, John Constantine, bitches that NBC might not pick him up. <laughs> I, I'm really trying. I'm, I'm trying to make this one like like super like dramatic and serious. So dramatic. like there are times where I want to be like make a joke, but I'm not. But right. I, I figure that I'll I'll make the joke and then do the serious one, and then we can have like an outtake thing at the end. Right. Because. Uh, because because i wrote this the same night i wrote the infinity incorporated one after i wrote the infinity incorporated oh, one and i was such a smart ass in that one i had to break myself of that because <laughs> i'm like no scott's gonna get pissed if i fuck around with this no one, so. no not at all <laughs> no i think we should be having fun with this it hits an unstable star in the vegan star system and erupts into another ray that streak streaks it streaks towards earth <laughs> I thought I thought I that. I thought I thought a way in the wagon system. I did. I did see a way in the wagon system. <laughs> Kimio peers through the telescope just in time to see the ray that the monarch. Kimio peers through the telescope. Telescope. Kimio peers through the telescope just in time to see the ray that the monitor created headed straight. Wow! What the f- did I just write? Kimio peers through the telescope just in time to see that the ray the monitor created streaking for her. God, I can't. 